Tonight we find Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. Now Jesus spent a lot of his ministry teaching around the sea, so in the New Testament it's actually a pretty prominent place. Now it's fed naturally by the Jordan River at the north and then dispenses into the Dead Sea in the south. Now it's only 21 miles long and 13 miles wide. I say that because even though that it is the biggest body of water in Israel, keep in mind that Lake Powell here in Arizona is at 1.25 miles wide. Regardless, there is a still a ton of fish in the sea, and so it really did provide this region full of industries full of fishing and trade. And it is as well, elevation-wise, it is the lowest freshwater lake in the world, and that's important because in this low valley, it actually creates a wind tunnel. See, wind comes from the west through the Galilee hill country, and then even more violent winds come in from the Golan Heights to the east. Now these winds then meet and then are trapped in this basin and honestly it could be very deadly for fishermen. In fact there was a storm back in March of 1992 that sent waves 10 feet high crashing down into the lakeshore town of Tiberias. So whenever the Bible mentions that there's a storm in the Sea of Galilee it is a big deal. So there you go a little bit about the Sea of Galilee and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us open the prayer. God, you're an amazing God, and you see us as we walk through this life of ours. Um, Father, we pray for protection as we go through this life. So many things that happen that are outside of our control, things that we stress about, worry about, get anxious about, so many things that are harmful toward us, so many things that are harmful toward our families, and so we pray for your protection. We also pray for your guidance as we deal with difficult situations. Um, we pray for your wisdom and for your clarity as we pursue right, right, re, or right courses forward. Father, we love you. We love your truth. We love that you've died for us. We, we love that you care for us. But we need help trying this earth, trying to make sense of it all, trying to get from where we are to where you are. And so we pray for that help today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So we're on this journey through the, the, the Bible. We're still in Matthew, but we're still in this journey. And so far, we've learned a lot about Jesus. We, we've seen just all kinds of miracles that he's done. Matthew's made the case for his uh, messiahship. Uh, we've seen people that are both fans of his and wanting to make him king. We've seen people that are opposed to him and, and getting more and more and more opposed, becoming more and more vehement against him. And you'll see that they send wave after wave after wave of people trying to catch Jesus in some kind of trap. Something to trip him up in his words. Something to show everybody that he's not the one that he claims to be. I was thinking about just trying to figure out a contemporary way to express that kind of stuff. Where, you know, where they ask the questions, but they're not really interested in the answer. They're interested in the trap. Trying to figure out exactly what that looks like. And as it happens, I was sent a video this week that... I think kind of serves the basis of something that I want to begin our, our discussion with tonight. And so I'll turn it over to James. Their, um, their letter states, and I quote, we write to express our deep concerns about the nomination of Russell Vogt to the position of Deputy Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Mr. Vogt has denigrated American Muslims and the Muslim faith. His writings demonstrate a clear hostility to religious pluralism and freedom that disqualify him for any appointment, including that of the deputy director of the OMD, so for the record. In the piece that I referred to that you wrote for a publication called Resurgent, you wrote, Muslim, quote, Muslims do not simply have a deficient theology. They do not know God because they have rejected Jesus Christ, his son, and they stand condemned. 
end of quote. Do you believe, do you believe that that statement is Islamophobic? Absolutely not, Senator. I'm a Christian, and I believe in a Christian set of principles based on my faith. Uh, that post, as I stated in the questionnaire to this committee, was to defend my alma mater, Wheaton College, a Christian school that has a statement of faith that includes the centrality of Jesus Christ for salvation. And again, I apologize. I do forgive me. I, we just don't have a lot of time. Do you believe that people in the Muslim religion stand condemned? Is that your view? Again, Senator, I'm a Christian, and I wrote that piece. Well, what does that say? The statement of faith of Wheaton. I understand that. I don't know how many Muslims there are in America. I really don't know. Probably a couple of million. Are you suggesting that all of those people stand condemned? What about Jews? They stand condemned too? Senator, I'm a Christian. I, I understand you are a Christian, but this country is made up of people who are not just. I understand that Christianity is the majority religion, but there are other people who have different religions in this country and around the world. In your judgment, do you think that people who are not Christians are going to be condemned? Thank you for probing on that question. As a Christian, I believe that all individuals are made in the image of God and are worthy of dignity and respect regardless of their religious beliefs. I believe that, that as a Christian, that's how I should treat all individuals. And do you think your statement that you put into that publication, they do not know God because they've rejected Jesus Christ the Son and they stand condemned, do you think that's respectful of other religions? Senator, I wrote a post based on being a Christian and attending a Christian school that has a statement of faith that speaks clearly with regard to the centrality of Jesus Christ in salvation. I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee um, is really not someone who is what this country is supposed to be about. I will vote no. It's an interesting discourse between Bernie Sanders and this guy that was up for the post of the Office of Management and Budget. There's a growing theology, I'll call it a PCism out there, that anything that goes against what they want to put forward is somehow sinful and wrong. It's not based on truth, but their perception of truth or their issues at hand. I don't want, you know, I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican. I don't care if you voted for Bernie. He's kind of like a, a funny old grandpa to me, but, it, but if that's who you voted for, I, that's okay. This isn't about politics. But what I, I want to get at this evening is that I want to, because I think this is a growing, growing perception in, in our world today, and I want to get at some of the, the truths or the untruths that were depicted in this discourse. I use it as an example of stuff that Jesus went through all the time, right? He, it was a trap. He was being baited. And, and God always promises to give us words in the midst of the time. And I think God gave the guy enough words to, to not bait the trap, you know, but, or not to fall into the trap. But I want to just talk about just this discourse. Fundamentally, let me just ask you the first question that Bernie was asking. Do all Muslims stand condemned before God? It's an interesting question. It's a, a slanted question for sure, but the reality is that we all stand condemned before God without Jesus, right? That Jesus, that God saw that state of man, that he saw that, that ruined relationship between us and him, that he saw our rebellion, that he saw our sin, that he saw there was no way on our current path that we could get to heaven. And into the sinful, rebellious morass of, of people, which we are included, 
He sent us his son Jesus to save us. That's why we call him Savior. He saved us from certain deaths, from certain hell, and he sent us Jesus, and he said, all those who believe in my son, I will forgive, and I'll give everlasting life to. And Satan's greatest victory, it actually turned out to be his greatest defeat, because in Jesus' death and resurrection, he won for us that forgiveness. He won for us that reconciled relationship with God, and he gave us heaven. So we could say rightly that all those who are without Jesus stand condemned. That means they go to hell. Now, now that isn't a popular message in our world today, right? It's not something that maybe we even preach on every Sunday, but there is that reality as we've gone through Scripture. It's why Jesus is warning us so much to follow him because he is the way, the truth, and the life. That there is no other name under heaven of which a man can be saved except Jesus Christ. It's a big deal. It is centric to our faith. It has been a pillar of our faith since its inception, since Jesus shared the words with us and died on the cross for us. The reason this was concerning for me is I've heard in the past different politicians or different leaders attack just different elements of the Christian faith, some different teachings over here on homosexuality, some different teachings here on, we'll call it murder and some other different things, usually moral issues. But I've never seen a leader of our country go after one of the centric pieces of our faith in quite that way. Now, here's, here's the difficulty with Bernie's stance, and, and, and it's, I, I, I'll give the best construction and just say he's a little bit confused as he enters into this discourse. Um, but there's some interesting things about this whole dynamic. Um, for example, are all three religions, Muslim, Jewish, and Christian, the same? In fact, they worship three different gods, right? They do. Allah is some other sort of God based on the Quran. Yahweh is our God, but, but removed from Jesus. So they have a sense of righteousness. They have a sense of truth. They have a sense of God and who he is. They're just missing the Messiah. They're missing the key answer. They're missing heaven. And so a Muslim would not say, I believe the same thing as a Christian, and a Christian would not say, I believe the same thing as a Jew, and a Jew would not say that they believe the same thing as, as a Muslim or, or, or a Christian. And yet, in this, Van Holland, which is another Democrat, after this discourse said, well, I'm a Christian, and yet I believe there's many ways that you can worship your God. And then he went on to say he was just concerned about this about his post, in other words, the centrality of Jesus, or the exclusivity of going to heaven if you don't have Jesus, right? So Jesus is the only way. And so I just, I wrote some notes. I, one, of the, one of the suppositions that they make is, are Muslims tolerant? Let's look at that. The answer is no, they're not. And in the Quran, it actually teaches them to extort or kill all unbelievers to the faith. It's how they kind of self-fund their government. And if you think that's so crazy that they would never do that, in Muslim nations that are over 85% Muslim, which there's a bunch of them, Christians are treated as second-class citizens in all of these countries. That, they are given, that means they don't have the same kind of health care. They don't have the same kind of justice. They don't have the same kind of opportunities. And they are taxed far and above everybody else. Muslim banks don't charge interest to fellow Muslims. They charge interest to all those that are unbelievers. And so they already, and these are what you would call moderate Muslims, people of the faith in all these different countries all over the world. They're not all extremists, and yet they've divided themselves between believers and unbelievers in a very direct way. 
Moving on from that, there's also fatwas. These would be amongst some of the more extreme, right? Against all the Christians in the world and all the Jews of the world. A fatwa would be declaring holy war against Christians, against Jews. Holy war is one of those things that uh, encourages bloodshed and excuses or exonerates or even gives benefits in heaven for those that could commit such acts. There's been a recent fatwa against all the churches, or I'm sorry, against 300 plus churches in America. As a result, there's Christians today that are being martyred every seven hours in our world today. Over a thousand people a year are being martyred by Muslims. Do they believe that there are many ways to Allah? No. They believe there is one way to Allah. And all unbelievers are a scourge on the earth that must be reckoned with. Are Jews tolerant? I'll say yes and no. They believe that they are God's chosen people and all others are excluded from his kingdom. They are not seeking to kill non-Jews, but they don't pretend to serve the same God as the Muslims or Christians. There is also no real effort to save or bring in unbelievers to the faith so that they can share in God's kingdom. So as long as you don't mess with them, they'll let you go and sell your way to destruction. They don't seem to have that as an agenda piece. Are Christians tolerant? Yes and no. We believe that Jesus Christ offers forgiveness to all those who believe in him, and as a consequence of that forgiveness, offers a right relationship with him and a home in heaven. We believe that all those that reject Christ go to hell. But so moved are we because of that reality that we seek not to kill unbelievers or to isolate ourselves from them, but to go out and share the good news of Jesus Christ to all who will listen in hopes that they too might believe in Jesus and be saved. And so as Bernie starts quoting these things, he's acting as if it's only the Christians who have a view of salvation that's different from the others. And it begs the question, perhaps he's just clueless, or perhaps there's an agenda, right? But one of the questions that I get from time to time is, how are some of the secular liberals in our country, uh, 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 Democrats are different for me from secular liberals. Secular liberals are those that embrace some of the non-scriptural parts of the Bible. How are they uh, linked or allied with Muslims today? And, And I ask that because I want to share some more realities with you. Muslims believe in a God. The secular left by and large does not. Muslims believe actively that in most of the, the moral part of the Ten Commandments, they would switch the first three to Allah, right, in serving God, but they believe in the, the rest of the moral law. As a result, they are very anti-gay. In fact, there's been different fatwas set up against people of homosexual orientation and mass killings in some cases, by ISIS especially. They put severe limitations on women's rights, which would seem to smack right in the face of that secular left. Support brutal punishment, cutting off of hands in response to stealing, capital punishment. Um, And they're actively at war against liberal ideology and are killing Christians and Jews all over the world today in the thousands. And if you think, okay, this is just the ISIS we're talking about, no. It's Iran and much of the Middle East that is at war or has threatened Israel's extinction. The reason there hasn't been peace in the Middle East is because they want to annihilate Israel, not be friends with Israel. Then there's the blowing up of churches and the treating Christians as second-class citizens. And so you have to ask, is it just ignorance that brings these two together? Or is it an alliance against Jesus Christ? 
I say that not to be all churchy, right? But just to say, what other reason could bring two extremes together except the enemy of my enemy is my friend? And then you get a picture of some of the weird discourse today. But it's this belief by Bernie then that encourages people, and maybe to an extent by Van Holland, that says, do you understand now why there's less and less people believing that there's a, there's a hell? Hell is an inconvenient truth, right? I guess much like, well, anyway, it's an inconvenient truth, right? I'll stop there. There's no point. Um, all right, and, and so if you are, I'm okay, you're okay, and there is no consequence to anything negative that I would do, then hell is a very inconvenient truth for those that would like to pursue a course apart from God. It's why Bernie got so upset. What do you mean somebody's condemned before God? How could you possibly say such a mean thing? It also explains why people are trying to minimize sin today. Because if they actually look at sin as sin, then there's certain things you can't do. And then there's certain times that you have to say no to people that you care about. And that creates a rub. It's an interesting discourse. And it's one that Jesus had in different ways with different people over the course of his ministry. Increasingly so at this point. You'll see the first, uh, the first discourse we get into after um, I start reading again is is the Jews sending a delegation from Jerusalem, a formal delegation, to test, out, to test out Jesus, to see where he will stand, to see what he believed, to see if they could catch him in a trap. And so we continue on this. I didn't see any questions, so I'm hoping I explained that well enough. Um, and I'll say one more thing. The concerning thing for me is not that they have this discourse. I've had this discourse with other people in my lives throughout the years. It's not a new discourse with people that don't believe, okay? What was concerning is this is the first time that people were willing to go on the record to persecute a Christian for holding to the faith that Jesus is the only way to heaven. It always begins this kind of way. It begins by somebody sticking their foot in the door and opening up to more people to do the same. It's something to be praying about. It's one of those things that God has had in my heart all day, and so I share it with you. And so we pick up in chapter 14 of Matthew, verse 22, with Jesus walking on the water. Now, just as a context, he just fed 5,000 people, 15,000 people, if the commentators are right, with the women and the children there. There was a whole bunch of people. He fed them, and they all ate to their full, and they had 12 basketfuls afterwards. One of the promises, or one of the marks of the Messiah, remember, was that he would feed people, like would feed them with manna. Jesus just essentially did that in one swoop. These people were convinced that he was the Messiah. They were convinced that he was going to become king. They wanted to make him king now. Is it not a little bit, could we not make the assumption just a little bit that the disciples might have gotten swept up in that? Just a little bit. So that night, Jesus wanting to again show them who he was, trying to stretch again their faith, trying to reprioritize what he was about, goes into this next section. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and before him to the, and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way off from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, it's a ghost. Now, it's not surprising they were terrified, right? Somebody's walking on the water, but add this into it as well. They had been up all day. They had fed a whole bunch of people. They had collected all that extra food. And now it's evening, 
and they've been fighting a storm the entire time. It's easy for them to imagine they were seeing a ghost or that something wasn't connecting with their eyes. I mean, they were, they were literally terrified. It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. We had an interesting conversation in Bible study this week about fear, and that fear is not from God. In fact, if you trust God, which is the antidote to fear, there is an absence of fear. These guys were freaked out because of the storm. They were terrified that things would go wrong. They were terrified, essentially, that they would drown. They were terrified now that they saw Jesus walking across the water. But he says, you don't have to be afraid. I'm here. Um, think of it when you were a kid and you had a horrible nightmare, right? And, and you were freaked out and you came running to mom and dad. W what made that nightmare better? Mom and dad were there. It, it works for my kids. They run in and they, they cling on to me or, or they, they cuddle up next to me or whatever. And within five minutes, they're fine. Why? Because I'm here. Because I'm big enough, I guess, to give the sense that I've got it, that things will be okay. And they trust that, and the fear dissipates. When I was little, my mom said, she said, you know, you can pray to Jesus, or to God, and say, in Jesus' name, Satan be gone, and he'll take away the bad dream. And I trusted that. And you, you know, to this day, every time I've prayed that prayer after a bad dream, I can go back to sleep, because he takes away the fear. I've been trying to teach that to my kids, and it's about trust, right? And sometimes I said, you have to pray it a couple times or, or several times, but eventually I promise you, God will take away the fear. So he's walking across the water. He says, do not be afraid. I've got you. I've got this. You don't have to be afraid of anything. I'm here. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. How cool is that? So Peter got out of the boat, which, okay, just impressive enough. Sometimes risking in faith is hard, right? But you can't do anything great unless you get out of the boat. Peter got out of the boat into a storm because Jesus said it was okay. Incredible trust. Probably more trust in that moment than any of us probably have experienced in a lifetime. It was incredible. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, what made Peter afraid? Was it Jesus? Took his eyes off Jesus. Put his eyes on the wind and the storm and the rain. And he started to doubt. Lord, save me, he cries out, in fear. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and he took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. The guy who just got out of the boat in a storm and walked on water, he says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It was in another discussion on this whole idea of faith. Another word for faith is trust, right? And again, I used this example this morning and I use it all the time, but it's easy for me to say I trust that that chair will hold me up. It's another thing to act on that belief. It's faith in, faith is an action word. And so you only act in faith when you trust that God will be there for you. I'll give you a few examples. Again, I gave them this morning if you were here, so these will sound redundant. But, but it's easy for you to say, yeah, I believe that God would take care of me if I tithe. Intellectually, I believe that. I've seen it in the Bible. That God opens up the storehouses of heaven. It should be awesome. It's another thing to actually act on that belief, isn't it? Why? Because fear, because control, right? 
If you truly believe that he'd open up the storehouses of heaven, hey, I just figured out my financial struggles, right? Jesus says, even, God says, even test me in this. Only time in the Bible he says it. If we truly believe that God answered prayer, we'd be praying all the time, wouldn't we? Unlike what we do today, which is we pray for a week or so, and then if it doesn't happen, it must not be God's will. We're a microwave society. We pray for a short time, and we give up over and over, or we don't even pray. Intellectually, we say prayer is powerful. It changes the world. You can move mountains with prayer. But it's usually only when we're forced into a corner that we actually look and do that. If we believe that in the Bible are the riches of heaven, his promises are found there, his comforts, his forgiveness, everything in the words of Scripture, it shares with us about Jesus, it shares with us about salvation. If we truly believe that that was true, action, we'd be reading it all the time. So that every time Satan attacked us, we could combat it with Scripture like Jesus does. So that no matter what we were facing, we would have a promise to cling to and to hold on to and to trust so that we would have confidence to go through that storm. I can't tell you, in a world where there's more Bibles out there than ever before, where the word is on the radio and on TV, there's a, at least in America, a church literally almost on every corner, translated into more places than you can imagine. There's more biblical illiteracy today than I can tell you about. And probably in the history of America, to be fair. If we believe what we say we believe, God's call is act on it. Otherwise, he looks at us like Peter and said, oh, you little faith, oh, you of little trust, why did you doubt? It's the story of being a disciple, isn't it? We are saint and sinner both. Paul says, the things I want to do, I find myself not doing. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the more. Oh, what a wretched man I am. All of us here are called to trust Jesus more. What I'm calling you to do is to stop rationalizing, justifying, and excusing why you don't follow, but repent instead and try anew to trust him with more in your life. That's his call to you. That's where peace comes from. That's where joy comes from. That's where hope comes from. That's where strength comes from. And so he looks at this guy who just walked on the water. Instead of saying, man, that was amazing. You trusted me for a second. That was really cool, you know. He says, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little trust. Why did you stop trusting me? When they got in the boat, the wind ceased again, declaring God's power. And those in the boat, they fell down, they worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Jesus blew open the doors again of what Jesus could do. Remember, he's already stilled a storm, so that would have been old hat. He could do that whenever he wanted, right? He's already healed people, so that wasn't a big deal. Cast out demons, that wasn't anything. Now he's walking on water, defying gravity. I mean, wow. And when he had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret, or Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched him as were made well. Jesus was becoming a rock star. He was free health care walking. People that couldn't get healed were clinging to him, running to him. How many of you guys have ever had cancer, ever had some kind of sickness that you, it just got you scared? Anybody been scared because of something that you guys have had? You don't have to raise your hand, but just think about that. Or a loved one that's been sick, or maybe a parent or whatever. 
And if you knew that in an instant you could go and get healed, is there any money you wouldn't pay to get there? Is there anything you wouldn't do to get there? I mean, we get pretty desperate when it's about us, when it's about living or dying, when it's about dealing with real sickness that affects our lives. And they fled, to, or fled to him. They ran to him, right, with all that they had. The Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. You get the sense that they set an official delegation to Jesus because he was becoming a rock star. They couldn't figure him out. All the reports were bad, except that he kept healing people and that they couldn't trick, trick him into saying anything that was wrong. So they came from Jerusalem and they said to Jesus, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders for they do not wash their hands when they eat? Now, it's interesting, in the, in the Talmud, in the Mishnah, they came up with all sorts of rules, again, to try to protect them from sinning against one of the Ten Commandments. So one of the new rules they had come up with just, I guess, in Jesus' lifetime is still being debated with this idea of washing your hands before a meal, right? Which seems silly to us because that's what you do. But they were having this discussion. It hadn't quite made it all the way to the people yet, but certainly the scribes and the Pharisees, they were abiding by this 100%. And so they said, you know, why do you break the tradition of the elders? We came up with this rule. We think it's a great rule. You should do this rule. For they did not wash their hands when they eat, he said of his disciples. And Jesus answered them. Okay, do you understand the trap here? We want you to go against the elders, right? We want you to make a proclamation that you're against us. <laughs> and Jesus kind of does. But here's what he says. And he answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. Now, at that time and still today, honoring your father and your mother means taking care of them even in their old age. Did you know that? There's a financial obligation attached to taking care of mom and dad. It's your responsibility as a Christian to not burden society with your family, but to take care of them. It was all wrapped up in this commandment. For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die as part of the commandment. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Now, let me just explain this a little bit. So there was this oath that you could take and you could say, church, I want to give you my possessions when I die. They're all yours. I don't have to give them up now, and I can use them as I, as I want to. And I could blow through it all, actually, if I wanted to. But whatever's left, I give to you the church. And that vow, right, a vow, if you make a vow to God, it kind of shoots up the ladder. It becomes of all important. You can break commandments and all sorts of stuff if you vow, Right? So they said you could make a vow to do this, thus exonerating yourself from having to take care of mom and dad. You hypocrites then, Jesus would say. Now, later on, just to show you the hypocrisy of this, several years, like 20, 30 years, around 80, 70, just before everything came crashing down in Jerusalem, the, 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 the Pharisees actually had changed this and given an exception for this fourth commandment, right? Honoring mom and dad. It says you can break the oath to follow this command of God. But clearly at this time, there was no exception that was made. Then he continues, Well did Isaiah say of you, or prophesy of you, when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. I'm just going to ask you, what are commandments of men today? What would that look like today? They really held a lot to God's word. They made up some, some laws and stuff here and there that were pretty suspicious, like the ones we just talked about. But this prophecy could be said of us today in our church at large, especially those that have stopped holding to Scripture, right? I'll read it again. This people honors me with their lips. They call themselves Christians, right? But their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines, uh, or as doctrines, in other words, as truths, the commandments of men. I just listed some of these things that people are teaching today in Christian churches. They're teaching that there's many ways to the same God. We're just one of them. Going against the exclusivity of Christ, going against scripture. But it's, again, a commandment of men. We made it up because we'd rather follow that. Um, the doctrine that there's no hell. It's a convenient truth. That means, what are you worried about? Uh, the one that sexual sin is okay. That's a new one. That all sin, uh, that you can, what is it? That all sin is okay because you've been forgiven. Sometimes there's such an emphasis on grace God has died for you, forgiven you, you are set free. That it's like getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, a get-out-of-jail-free card, does that make you want to be obedient? Or does it make you want to try to kind of test the lines, knowing that you got one free shot? Let's say I gave you all free shots. You could have as many get-out-of-free cards as you wanted. Would that tend to make you more a follower of the rules or less a follower of the rules? Less. And so we have a segment of our church that preaches the gospel in purity but ignores the law. Here's the problem with that. If you take away the law, you take away your need for Jesus. He came to save you from your sins. If there's no sin to be saved from, what does Jesus matter? And now you have a glimpse into why so many are leaving the church. Because what does Jesus matter? It's why 70% of millennials will answer the question, um, does the Bible have any relevance, relevance for your life? And 70% of them will say no. Um, let's see another one. Um, scripture isn't the, the truth. And so we can make it up as we go along. It's interesting, if you can make it up as you go along, then you have our society, and it's a perfect reflection of our society, and yet I wonder sometimes why we keep calling ourselves Christ. Christians, why not Unitarians? Why not we make this up as we go? And so Jesus condemns the Pharisees of the day. He condemns huge swaths of the church that have abandoned God's word. And then he goes on. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles the person. So he's talking about this whole idea of washing your hands. Certainly not washing your hands can make you sick, right? But he'll talk about a greater sickness that we need to be concerned about. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Well, duh. <laughs> I think that's why he said it. But anyway, he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if a blind leads the blind, both will fall into the pit. What is he saying here? Is he saying that if the blind lead the blind, that they'll both be okay, there's nothing to worry about? He's giving a euphemism to hell. If somebody abandons the truth 
They are blind. They are without the light. They are without the truth. They are without direction. If the blind lead also the blind, they're never going to find heaven because they're never going to find Jesus. But Peter said to them, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, and murder, and adultery, and sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. So it's the heart that matters, and it's the heart that God looks at on Judgment Day, and it's the heart that either follows God or rejects God's truth. It is the heart that Satan is trying to corrupt. It is the heart that the Holy Spirit is working to save. It is the heart that matters. So you look at all this list of different things, and we're implicated sometimes even in the midst of these. It's when we pursue these sins in rejection of God that those flags should be waving back and forth. In fact, any of these sins as we pursue them should be a red flag saying, danger, danger, danger. You will get consumed by these. These will destroy you. Come back, come back, come back. And there's a point where you stop listening, where the reality of the results of what you've become becomes something that doesn't make it to heaven. Somebody asks, can you lose your salvation? And the answer is, if you go down that kind of path, you don't lose it instantaneously. The spirits, they're yelling at you. You feel the guilt. You're, you're in that wrestling moment. Somebody asked me, when can you not come to communion? When you stop wrestling with God, when you stop needing his strength, when you stop seeking him for wisdom and direction in your life. And when you've done that and stopped, you're in very real danger of giving up everything. That's why Jesus says, follow me. Live in a state of repentance before me. Be forgiven all the time. Have that peace all the time. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that... Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm going to try to finish this one. Uh, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, she is crying out after us. He answered, I was, only, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's true, that was his charter. That's who he was trying to reach. He was trying to reach God's people, to share with them that he was the Messiah so they could go to heaven. That was his, that was his mission. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw them it to the dogs. That was a word of derision. He was not being kind. He was trying to push her away, I think on purpose, as the story goes on. But, but he was trying to make a firm thing get away. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She wasn't denying that that was Jesus' mission. She was just crying for mercy. In response to that, Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. One of my professors said, always would ask the question, how big is your Jesus? And he would always cite this woman and the centurion. But when he would talk about this woman, she said this woman's faith was so big, she wouldn't let Jesus not be for her. No matter the obstacles that were before, no matter how hard it was, she would not let Jesus not be for her. And she cried out for mercy and got healed. 
My prayer for you tonight is that each one of you would not let Jesus not be for you. That you would do whatever it takes to be in his arms. That you would do whatever it takes to follow him for your good and for your eternity. That you would live in a state of repentance before him, experience the grace, experiencing the forgiveness, experiencing the peace, experiencing the joy over and over. And then when there are times that we're called to give an account, we're able to open our mouths and let Jesus work. We're able to open our mouths, encourage, and bring people to Jesus. Let us pray. God, we love you so much. And as we go through this text, as we just think about life in general, life is sometimes hard, Lord. We watched you go through some of the most brutal times as you were going through some of this adversarial time with the Pharisees. And it just got worse as we pursue your journey to the cross. And so we pray for strength, Lord. Strength not just to follow you, but strength to trust you more and more in our life. Strength to rely on you more and more in our life. And strength to follow you. Give us the wisdom to stop excusing and justifying and rationalizing. Give us, give us the motivation, Lord, to see in your promises real truth and real promises and real differences in our life. And remind us that every step of the way, no matter what, you're with us. You're with us to forgive, to give hope, and to give life. We thank you for Jesus, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen.